always good to celebrate the Lord's Supper um, with you guys, with, with our family, our extended family. The Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the good gift, God's good gift, that's what we're going to be focusing in on this morning. Next week, Maddie mentioned it in the video, we start a brand new sermon series called Losing My Religion. And so we're going to be exploring the irreligious gospel and good news of Jesus. So if you've ever been burned by religion, this is a sermon for you. If you have any friends who've been burned by organized religion, this is going to be the series to invite them to experience the irreligious nature of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, over these last 12 weeks, as we've begun Prodigal Church, we've gotten a lot of questions. And uh, one of those questions that, that comes again and again and again is this. Do you guys have life groups? Do you guys have a youth group? And I want to just kind of address that in a blanket statement here. We will. Um, but we're 12 weeks old, and so we've kind of kind of walk before we can run. And so in 2018, we plan on launching life groups and a youth ministry. And so more info, that, more info on that um, in the upcoming weeks and months. But uh, thanks for your grace as we begin this new adventure of planting a church. Now, the Christmas season isn't very far away, and I love the Christmas season. It's my favorite season, and I'm sure that we're all going to be doing a lot of shopping. Now, I have a theory that there are basically three different types of shoppers, okay? There's the person that says, I want that, and I'm going to get that no matter what, okay? If you're giggling, it's probably you or your spouse. <laughs> There's the person that says, I want that, but not at that price. And then there is the person who looks at the price first and then decides whether or not he or she wants that. Uh, now I'm picturing my wife, Sarah, and, and uh, she's, we go shopping, and then she uh, picks out this sweater, and she comes out, and she says, do you like it? My first response is, how much does it cost? <laughs> and then she says, oh, it's great. It's, it's only $15. Baby, you look so good in that sweater. And then she says, oh, my, my bad. I'm sorry. It's $150. And I go, mm, come to think of it, in that light... I think it kind of takes away from your natural beauty. Maybe we should put that back. I like to count the cost before making the purchase. See, the price matters to me. I read an article about a young man several years ago who had just been called to go to war in Iraq. Um, and the problem for this young man was he didn't want to go. He explained that I joined the army not to go to war, but rather I joined for the benefits, the pay, the college, the tuition, the insurance, etc. That's why I joined. Now, there's something wrong with that kind of thinking, right? One of the primary functions of the military is to be ready for war. You've got to know what you signed up for. Uh, I, I'm sure it's somewhere in the job description. Armies don't exist to pass out perks. And the kingdom of God doesn't exist to pass out perks either. If you're following Jesus for the eternal benefits, you may not be ready to fight the fight or count the cost. We must count the cost. And Jesus doesn't shy away from telling us what the cost is. In fact, whenever he gets a large following and everyone gets all excited about this up-and-coming Jewish rabbi, he says something or does something that makes the crowds leave. The fact is, following Jesus is hard, and he tells us so. Matthew 16, 24 and 25, it says this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. 
We are in the final week of our Death to Selfie sermon series, and this week we're going to close with one of the slogans of Jesus. One of the slogans of Jesus, uh, pick up your cross and follow me. He says this five different times in the Gospels, and he says something similar um, way more than that. It was a slogan. Uh, and slogans make all the difference if they're true, okay? And as I was researching this, uh, here are some company slogans that, it, that we've changed so that they would line up to what's actually true, okay? Number one, Netflix. You spend more time searching than actually watching, <laughs> okay? Two, chapstick. You'll misplace it before the tube is empty. <laughs> Next, Pizza Hut. We have a salad bar for some reason. <laughs> This one's for my kids. Uh, Crayola, the white one is useless. <laughs> and finally, this one might resonate with some of you. Werther's original, in the purse of every grandma. <laughs> uh, those slogans are true. And so is this slogan of Jesus. Let me read it again. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. The year was 1889 on the continent of Africa. Menelik II became emperor of Ethiopia. Here's a picture of him. Now, he was a powerful ruler who transformed a country uh, from a collection of like independent city-states into a united nation. And part of his effort to modernize the country was he ordered three electric chairs from New York to be shent, sent to Ethiopia. But when they arrived, there was a problem. Ethiopia didn't have electricity. So that wasn't going to work. So we had these three electric chairs that he couldn't use. How did he solve the problem? Well, he built this elaborate stage and this throne and used it as his throne. It's odd, isn't it? The symbol of his, the power of his kingdom was this instrument of death. And when Jesus established his kingdom, he did the same thing. He deliberately used an instrument of death as a symbol of his kingdom and power. One of the most peculiar messages that Jesus ever sends or shares is this message of pick up your cross and follow me. See, in Jesus' day, it wasn't cool or appropriate to wear a cross around your neck. There was no cross earrings. It was a torture device. Nobody decorated their cars or homes with crosses in the ancient world. Caesar Augustus bragged about capturing 20,000 runaway slaves and he crucified them. The movie Spartacus uh, uh, tells this true story of an army of rebellious soldiers who revolted against Rome, 6,000. 6,000 of them were crucified on the Apian Way, the major road leading into Rome. 6,000 people crucified on crosses. At another time, 2,000 people in Palestine were crucified for their rebellion against the authority in Rome. Crucifixion was a horrendous way to die. To be crucified in the eyes of a Jew meant that you were cursed by God. So if you were living in the early first century, the cross would be a symbol of shame and terror for you. Not, oh, cool, they're Christians. Other world religions are known for their brightly painted images and gold-covered statues, but at the center of Christianity is this old, rugged cross. The symbol of our faith. It's a symbol of the one who died and that he has called us followers to die as well. 
Whoever said that in Christianity, Jesus is the only one who does the dying. We are to die to ourselves every single day. And, the, and Christian marriage is one of the greatest ways to display this, right? We die to our own desires for the benefit of our spouse. We're called to die every day to ourselves with each decision, with each choice, with each thought. We filter it through Calvary's cross. Rob Frazier, a contemporary Christian artist, wrote a song, and the chorus goes like this. He doesn't want you better. He wants you deader. Dead people don't mind the pain. Don't get offended so they never complain. They're not concerned about personal gain. That when Jesus calls a man, he calls him to come and die. He doesn't want you better. He wants you deader. Oh, the wonderful cross bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. He calls us to die to ourselves, but not so that we can be dead inside, but so that we can be alive inside. That is the way of resurrection. You first must die before you are raised to new life. If you're not dead before the resurrection, it's just a nap. When Jesus asks his disciples to pick up their cross and follow him, he's asking them to count the cost. He's saying that the kingdom of God is free, but will cost you everything. He's asking us to pick up our electric chairs and to be identified with him till death do us part. That's a big ask. And I think it's fitting to say that the disciples whom he's speaking with here, uh, when Jesus went to that cross and took up his own cross, they were nowhere to be found. They abandoned Jesus as well. See, the journey of discipleship is filled with missteps, mistakes, and mishaps. The journey of picking up our cross is filled with mistakes, missteps, and mishaps. One step forward, two steps back, three steps forward, a half a step back, right? This is discipleship. We're good, we're not so good. We're doing great, we make a mistake. None of us have it together. And the church should be a place where it's okay to not be okay. It's okay. None of us have it together. Galatians 5 says the same thing. Verse 16, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with one another, so that you are not, so that you do not do whatever you want. Now, this Greek word here for flesh is the word sarx, and it means like animal nature, okay? The selfish parts of who we are. So we could say that the sarx desires contrary what it, contrary to what the spirit desires. Or we could say it this way: the self desires what is contrary to the spirit. Sarks and self are almost synonymous. We could have said, called this series, Death to Sarksy. It just doesn't quite have the same ring to it. But have you experienced this, right? The spirit and the self being in conflict. Now, I am a big, big, big football fan. Many of you know this. My favorite team is the Kansas City Chiefs. And this past Thursday night, my daughter Ivy and I sat down to watch the Kansas City Chiefs play the Oakland Raiders. And Dex and, Dex and Sarah went to the store, and it was just me and my girl. Here's a picture of us. Um, she never looked prettier, okay? And so we're, we got the game in the background. We got my girl on my lap, and we are cheering for our team. And when I watch the Chiefs play, I am invested, okay? 
way too invested. There's a reason why Sarah took Dex to the store that night. She didn't want to be around me. Uh, I'm yelling at the refs. There was this defensive holding call in the third quarter on our safety, Eric Murray, former fifth-round pick out of the University of Minnesota. And it was a horrendous call. And so I am yelling at the refs. Let me rephrase that. I am yelling at the TV, okay? I am, this, it sounds insane, right? I am yelling at an inanimate object, okay? Uh, that's crazy. That's like Stephen, our worship pastor, yelling at his hairdryer, you know? Like, it's, it's, it's insane. It's not even there. It's not even real. It has no feelings. My sarks, my flesh is winning the battle. Then came the end of the game. And let's just say that the game didn't go my way. My night is ruined, okay? So now I got to help put the kids to bed. And I'm doing everything in my power not to let it affect me. And so I'm trying to like smile as like I'm, you know, giving the kids a bath or whatever, uh, praying with Dex. Like I'm trying to do whatever I can, but there's nothing I can think or do that's going to get my mind to a place where I feel better about sleeping. I realize it's ridiculous. I realize it's a game. But Sarah and I are laying in bed watching a comedy that night, and it's hilarious. And I'm like this. refusing to laugh or even crack a smile. Now, the next morning, I got to thinking about my friend Jared, who lives in Colorado. And uh, my friend Jared is a diehard Raiders fan. And Jared has had a really rough last five months. He's dropped over 100 pounds, and he has this deteriorating condition to where he's almost wheelchair-bound now. So I picture Jared and the joy he got when Michael Crabtree caught that touchdown pass <laughs> with no time on the clock. And so I thought, you know, it would mean a lot if I called him and just congratulated him on his team's big win. So I did. And my friend doesn't have the most tact and he didn't really know how to handle this conversation. And so he started saying things like, what did it feel like to blow a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter? And I was like, it didn't feel good. And then he's like, we got you guys pretty good, huh? And I'm like, yep, congrats. And he just wanted to keep talking about it. And it's everything in me to just be nice to the guy. And one night, the Sarks won, and I felt sorry for myself, and I yelled at appliances. <laughs> and one morning, my spirit won, moving me towards loving God and loving others in a greater way. And if you're like the disciples, if you're like me, if you're like all of humanity, then you have experienced the self or the Sarks winning, right? But you have also experienced moments of goodness and joy and holiness as the spirit wins out. How do we help the spirit win? There's an old Native American legend that recounts a chief gathering all the little braves. And he's speaking about the struggle within. And he says, there are two dogs inside of you. There's the good dog and there is the bad dog who wants to lead you to bad choices. Sometimes the good dog wins and sometimes the, the, the bad dog is stronger and wins. And then one of the young braves says, who's going to win in the end? And the chief 
says, the one in which you feed. The one you feed. Good dog, bad dog. Augustine says something similar with his stages of sin. He says, Lord, make me good, but not yet. And he says, Lord, make me good, but not entirely. And then, Lord, make me good. Where are you at in this? The reason why the spirit doesn't win over the sarks or the self is probably because we just don't want it to. And if we're honest, that's probably the truth. And some of us, we fail more often than we want, but there's, there's one thing that can help. Uh, one battle at a time. One battle at a time. Focus on the issue that you know that your spirit needs to win over that flesh and tackle that one. In December of 1944, the German army launched an unexpected attack, and it became known as the Battle of the Bulge. And it, they were, uh, had overwhelming numbers against the Allied forces. The American uh, soldiers uh, left in retreat. But they didn't just run away and flee. Rather, um, almost at each little building, each little bridge, they would have a few soldiers fight off this emerging vast German army. And they would be hidden under the night sky, or it would be under the cover of fog in the morning, or under snowfall, in these little tiny battles. Writing about World War II, uh, James Jones says this, he says, No one of these little road junction stands could have had a profound effect on the German drive, but hundreds of them impromptu little battles at nameless bridges and unknown crossroads had an effect of slowing enormously the German impetus. These little diehard one-man stands, alone in the snow and fog without communications, would prove enormously effective out of all proportion to their size. If you try to overcome all of your missteps at one time, you will be overwhelmed. I got to get this right, this right, this right, this right, this right, this right. And it becomes something we go, I throw in the towel. I'm never going to get this right. I'm never going to live godly. I'm never going to get righteousness in this aspect of my life. But if you start with one problem, one struggle at a time, as you cultivate a life of picking up your cross and following Jesus, the missteps happen less and less. And with each victory, the enemy's power in your life is weakened. It makes a difference. Jesus says to pick up your cross daily. It's not Sunday mornings picking up my cross, but I go to work and I lay the cross down. No, this is something that we do every single day. You're making a difference. Philippians 1 says this, verse 27. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Paul normally uses the phrase, walk with God, or a Christian's walk, to display or to share about Christian living. But he uses a phrase here, unique to Philippians. It's the word, palatiste. Uh, <laughs> My friend Sophie speaks Greek fluently. I don't. The NIV translates it, conduct yourself in a worthy manner. The phrase is referring to the life of a citizen. The best translation I've read would be to order your common life. What a phrase. Order your common life worthy of the gospel. It's a convicting phrase. Order your common life. Let me walk you through my common life, okay? I wake up to the sound of my four-month-old daughter in the video monitor 
grunting because she's going to the bathroom. Wake up every morning, her grunting wakes me up. And then I got to go up there and I'm going to change her and because uh, I don't want her to wake up Dex. And so then I change her and I put baby powder on her and, and I put the diaper back on. And then I realize she woke up Dex. And so then I help Sarah um, uh, with breakfast time for the kids. Uh, and then I let Dex help make my coffee. He's our little family barista. Um, and so every morning he helps us make coffee. Then I, I, I change my clothes. I put on some cologne. Um, and then uh, I get in my car and I drive to a coffee house of some sort and I start to study. Uh, I pray a little. I'm not very attentive to the people around me. I respond to text, emails, phone calls. Sometimes the phone rings. I'll go, don't want to answer that call. Then I kind of head to a lunch meeting, put on more cologne, put off returning emails, maybe play some worship music, start doing expense reports and paperwork for the church. I FaceTime Sarah, Dex, and Ivy. And then I go to meet and counsel people and all the while being a little bit bummed that meeting with these people are, is actually taking me away from doing admin church business stuff. After work, I work out. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I get in the car, put on a little bit more cologne, Say, pull into my house, say hi to my neighbor, Tani, and then I play monster trucks with Dex. I eat dinner, talk to Sarah about her day, all the while Dex is asking me to play more monster trucks, so I go and play more monster trucks. I lay Ivy down for her evening nap. I help the kids take their baths. Give Ivy her last bottle, pray with her, tuck Dex in, pray with him, watch some TV with Sarah, maybe do some reading, brush teeth, pray for a few minutes tops. Spray one more shot of cologne before I go to bed, just so I wake up fresh. That's my common life. What would it look like if I evaluated my common life to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? What if I reordered my common life to die to self, to pick up my cross daily and follow him? What's your common life? What do you need to change? What priorities do you need to elevate? How does your schedule reflect the lordship of Jesus in your heart, in your life? I want to invite Stephen in the band up, and I'll close with this. Reordering our common lives, that's called growth. And when you lose this life for Jesus, when you pick up your cross, you're picking up something better than the American dream. You're choosing lasting joy, not fading happiness. There's this powerful story of uh, a youth pastor who many, many years ago, uh, his youth group in Chicago, he, they were going to take this missions trip to Florida and to go to the coast of Florida and share the love of Jesus. And so they're getting ready to get on a bus. And then the pastor says, listen, uh, we don't want to forget why we're here. Uh, we're not going to just go to the beach. In Chicago, you want to go to the beach. And, and so all the kids are excited. He says, we're here to show the love of Jesus. And so the pastor constructed this massive cross. 
And he said, we're going to take this everywhere we go. And so they haul it onto the bus, and it rattles all over the bus, all the way down to Florida. But they began to take it into restaurants if they stopped. Uh, they took it into their hotel. Everywhere they went, they took this massive cross. And after lugging the cross around, it, it kind of embarrassed the kids. But at some point, it became like a point of identification. Now it became an honor to hold the cross and to lug it no matter where they were. So they were on the beach, and they had someone carrying this massive cross. And the night before they came home, the pastor said to them, listen, if you want to pick up your cross daily, here are two nails. One, you can nail to the cross. And the second, put it in your pocket, put it in your car, put it in your wallet or your purse, and carry it around with you as a symbol of the good news of Jesus, of the cross of Christ. One by one, the teens drove nails into the cross. And about 15 years later, one fellow, now a stockbroker, called his youth leader, told him that he still keeps the nail in his desk drawer, that when he loses his sense of focus, he looks at that nail and remembers the cross on that beach in Florida. It reminds him that Jesus is the center of life and that it's all about the cross. God, I pray in Jesus' name that we would be all about the cross, that the best way to live is to die to ourselves. God, Father, move us. Spirit, lead us to a new place, to a new day. God, we ask that we would come to the cross for forgiveness and for the abundant life you offer, that we would die to ourselves, that we would die to ourselves in our marriages, that we would die to ourselves at work with our family, with our children and our grandchildren, that we would live a life that shows what Paul says, that, that I think of nothing except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. God, let us be that kind of followers. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the wonderful cross that bids us come and die and find that I might truly live, God. That is the way of resurrection, God. Resurrect, re- resurrect us this morning, Jesus. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close with this song and sing to the King of Kings, the Savior of the world who died on a cross for you, for me, and for the entire world, and let our lives reflect this cross-shaped nature of dying to ourselves.